0: Right ladies and gentlemen our final speaker our final speaker today is Patrick Fagan Guess which country he comes from Ireland we have a truly international panel of experts today from Germany from France from the Caribbean and now from Dublin Patrick is, in fact, the director of the Marriage and Religion Research Institute at the Catholic University of America in the United States. And this gives him a unique access to his research on the family. I've gone into his website. It is incredibly interesting. I highly recommend Thank you. I highly recommend you go into his website. But enough of me. Thank you very much. Patrick
1: Fagan. Well, thank you very much, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, it's delightful to be here. Before I start actually now because I'm last, one of the things I've noticed is that the Eucharist goes through everyone. You'll see it coming up here. We weren't prompted, we all prepared independently, but it's the center of everything. It's amazing. To start off, I have this up here. I speak, I used to speak Gaelic, I do speak English, and my third language is PowerPoint. (laughs) Well, our Lord came on Earth, to reveal God to man, but also to reveal man to himself. And we've got to keep that very much in mind as we go through this whole issue of the sexual. And of course, the, he stayed and stays with us through the Eucharist and through the Mass. And Father Arman this morning talked about the re-evangelization. He was talking about the new evangelization, then the re-evangelization. I said, he's looked at my notes, <laughs> as you can see there. We're on the same track. What I have here is actually, you can see that there, it's a bit of an icon of, um, or a map of Ireland and England. And we got evangelized before you guys, and then we brought it over, you know that? Yeah. It, even, even before Pope Gregory sent the monks to Canterbury. However, this is a map of the family in the United States drawn from U.S. Census data, and we can dig down quite deep. And this is the map of the intactness or non-intactness of the family. The darker the color, the more intact. But even the most intact, so-called intact states um, and we're measuring it here. I think the key point is, has a child grown up in an intact family up to adulthood? So we measure it at age 17. They're just about to leave home, go off to college, et cetera, and also census doesn't follow them any longer as members of the family. At age 17, what proportion are still in an intact married family, and we're talking about the natural family, and it's biological parents. Divorced, remarried, and all the rest there, the non-intact. You can see where the family is most broken is in the south, what's called the Bible Belt. It's white there across the bottom. Uh, The top three, Utah and Minnesota, Utah, which is over here, and Minnesota up there, they vie and change place for first and second. Two very different religious backgrounds, Mormons and Dutch Reform. Not totally, but that's the big influence up there. Number three is a surprise for Americans. It's New Jersey, which is just across from New York City. And it's quite a Catholic state. It's not just Catholicism, but it's um, that surprises people because it's deep in urban America. This is a picture if you can see it it's um the little dark spots are the church at its beginning the first 300 years where the church started are those dark little spots around palestine then up into greece and rome and northern africa there you can see around marseille and that and southern spain Then the lighter green is how far the church had spread by the year 600. And then you add that bit of yellow, which takes in a good part of the United Kingdom and Germany. That was by 800. Actually, by the year 1000, you put in Norway, Sweden, and Russia. So a gradual expansion. One of the hidden benefits of the spread of the church that people haven't realized, definitely not in the States, I don't know about here, what also came with it was intact monogamous marriage. And with that came, on the natural law level, here I'm speaking as a social scientist, which means we're a natural law, um, what came with it, a natural law, is tremendous strike, which we can only see now as marriage retreats And we have the social sciences measuring as it retreats. And as marriage retreats, you've got a breakdown in the family, you get a rise in crime, you get get all, whatever's wrong, you get more of it. And as the church spread and with it came intact marriage, you got greater longevity, greater happiness, more income, more savings, more peacefulness more mental health, all of the rest of it. Guess who realizes how important that was? Communist China. By the early, by around 1200, China, which had always, and truthfully, or with, with good substance, had regarded itself as the leading civilization in the world, realized that by around 1200, Europe overtook them. And what you had there was the gradual increase in human benefits accumulating as the church spread. Communist China, for the last 30 years, has had an institute studying the effects of Christianity because of that. They realized they were overtaken, and they want the benefits of Christianity without Christianity. Good luck to them, but... Yeah. I came across that because I did a paper back in my early days at the Heritage Foundation on the effects of religious practice. And it got a lot of, it was the first time it was all pulled together anywhere. It got a lot of exposure and a lot of play. And in less than a year, I had a scholar from this institute in Communist China came to talk with me all about it. And that's how I found out about this institute and why it was there and all of the rest of it. Okay. I'm laying the groundwork for something I want to go on to. If we take the church in the early days and today, actually, we're, we're returning pretty quickly, the church is returning to circumstances very similar to those in the earliest days of the birth of the church. It's essentially, small communities surrounded by paganism. And all the sexual stuff that we're decrying were all there then. Transgender. Homosexuality, contraception, abortion, prostitution, eroticism, pornography. That was just in the air all around when the church was born. That was the culture it, born, it was born into. But those pagans back then, and if you take the church back then, were very gradually became aware of these Christian communities. They were different. They said, see how they love one another. And one of them said, they're strange. They don't share their wives with visitors. (laughs) (laughs) On the sexual, Christians stood out. But where did you find Christians? You found them on the Sabbath day at the sacrifice of the mass, and that was the community. That's how you spotted the community. Around the, around the Eucharist as the sacrifice of the Mass was celebrated. Now I want to fast forward. I'm going to give you a, a quick listen, a lesson in history, starting with the French Revolution. This is the radical assault on the family shorthand. It started before them, but really in its most aggressive, overt, organized, and now deliberate. And everything we're experiencing today comes directly out of this. French Revolution, remember the time when, well, there was the assault on marriage, there was the assault on sexuality, probably most nastily illustrated at the time of the orgy in Notre Dame with the prostitute on the high altar. Expression. You had Rousseau and De Sade the great pornographer, but also awful stuff that he's talking and writing about And Rousseau's autobiography was like one of these great pornographers flaunting his stuff, you know? Fast forward 50, 60 years, you've Marx and Engels, growing directly out of a lot of that. They targeted, they realized that both the family and religion were the two big obstacles to international socialism. Fast forward another 50, 60 years, you've Lenin, the first practitioner of that stuff in violent form, he immediately eliminated marriage in the USSR. Ten years later, I think it was Stalin or just pre-Stalin, it had to be reinstituted because of the chaos that uh, emanated. But before he died, Stalin pulled together a guy named Georg Lukash, who had been the minister of culture in communist Hungary. Hungary was a communist country for two years. I think it was 2021 or 21-22. Then they got kicked out, and Georg Lukács, who was an intellectual, he pulled him in and the head of the Comintern, which was the Communist International Fundraising Group, and he told the Comintern, you fund Georg. Georg, you have to figure out how to collapse the West from within. The proletariat in the West will not rise up. Life is too good. So to overtake the West, they said, we collapse it from within. That was Georg Lukacs went off and started the Frankfurt Institute. He was always hidden behind it, but he was the real guy in the beginning, a lot of others. And the Frankfurt Institute was an institute of professors, all Marxists, all atheists, many of them atheistic Jews, uh, which has its part. And they did what the professors do, write papers, get them published, have conferences, teach classes, all the rest. But what they were figuring out, or trying to figure out, was how to collapse the West from within. And they went ahead, and actually they've been pretty successful, or they're one of the big contributors to the breakdown today. Um, when Hitler took over... They had to flee fairly quickly. For one thing, they were communists, and there was a big battle or competition between a race between the communists and the Nazis as to who would rule, take over uh, communism. So once Hitler got in, they had to flee because they had most of them, a lot of them were Jews, and all of them were communists. Where did a good swath of them end up? Columbia University in New York. Brought there, door opened by John Dewey, who you may hear is one of the big so-called education gurus. Now we have Margaret Sanger there, but I want you to go beyond hers, Kate Millett. Kate was one of the um, great feminist authors of the 1960s and that. And she's significant because, well, there was a whole group of intellectuals uh, who started what became known as the the National Organization of Women. Very intelligent, highly educated, high, very dedicated, bright women, and I've read the biographies of about half of them, and the pattern is very clear. Every single one of them, any feminists I've come across, these radical early feminists, all had a father you would not want to visit on anybody. You could understand their hatred of their father, And from that then, of course, came the hatred of men. And Kate was one of them. She was Catholic, at least raised in a Catholic family, she and her sister, Mallory. Kate went, I think, to New York University undergrad, Oxford for master's degree, and back to Columbia for PhD. Her sister, Mallory, went a different route. She went to Europe, married a European guy, had a baby, they divorced, And she was coming back to the States. And Kate, who was doing her doctorate at Columbia under some of these... um, under some of these um, Frankfurt School guys, she was living in the village, which is down in southern Manhattan. And um, she said to Kate... Well why don't you come back and stay with me while you get your feet until you get your feet on the on the ground again back in the States? And Kate said or Mallory said, Fine. So Mallory was living with her, while at the same time Kate and her friends, who were the founders of the National Organization of Women, were meeting prior to the founding. And here's how they started their meetings. She was in on these because she was living with Kate, and a lot of the meetings took place in Kate's apartment. Why are we here today, Kate asked. To make revolution, they answered. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution, they chanted. How do we make cultural revolution, she demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back? By destroying the American patriarch. How do we destroy the American patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we destroy his power? By destroying monogamy. How do we destroy monogamy? Get this. By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. They resounded. Mallory, who wrote this, wrote this in 2014. Mallory came back to the church, married a good guy, and... um, Went on, she was a minor actress in Hollywood for a while, but good devout life. In 2014, she wrote this. No, she wrote this in 2014, five years ago. And this is part of an article reviewing the whole thing. Um, And I think it's one of the most important pieces of reporting in the 20th century for all the things that I'm interested in. Two of the women who are present here, all the women at this group, the founders of the NOW, very bright, highly educated. Across the US, and I don't know what the the state of it is here in the UK, but at all the public universities and almost all the big private universities, there are centers of women's studies. You have the same here? They started in the US. The first one was at Cornell University, founded by one of the ladies at that table. The second one was at Princeton, founded by another lady at that table. And from there they proliferated. And this is where they really went deep, how to do this. Um, now the key here is the, the use of the sexual. The way I'd sum this up, how do you destroy the family? Sex gone what? Why? Because men are suckers, for it. We're easily led astray, um, and that's what they've done. That's a bit of the women's study center. Now, what? Here's one of the. For me, I've rep, replicated. This is a chart from the National Survey of Family Growth. This, all that, all any of the data I use is U.S. federal government data. Very large samples and the source is unquestionable, so I don't get into debates about where it came from. What you're looking at here is, uh, from this big national sample, we're looking at the breakdown of the divorce rate of those who are married in a particular year, and five years later, at year five, what percent are still married? Controlling for the number of sexual partners they've had in their lives. The red line up top are men, the blue are women. They're not husband and wife, the sample is not like that, so they're two independent samples, but at the same time. The first one here, those who've had, they're married, and they've only had one sexual partner in their life. Well, if they're married, that's their spouse, okay? Five years later, 95% of them, there's very little difference between the two, are still Married, intact. Now let's look at the women, the blue line. The woman who has had two sexual partners, and almost all of them are before, the other partners before marriage. It drops from 95 down to 62%. With one extra partner, so two before marriage, it drops down to 50, and then it plateaus. That's huge. Massive. And I've replicated that. It's not always exactly the the numbers, but it's pretty much that pattern in that same range, three different times from the same survey with a good 10 years in between. So it's, the first time I saw it and graphed it, what immediately jumped to my mind was, my goodness, those Mediterranean cultures, chaperoning the young girls, knew something about human nature. They are protecting the girl, but they were also protecting the future husband and the children and the grandchildren. That's what culture does, actually. Culture, the biggest role culture has, a vibrant culture handed on from generation to generation and essentially distilled over millennia, hundreds and hundreds of years, of essentially human wisdom. And culture's biggest task is shaping the sexual. I was going through this and saying that to, oh, about two, three months ago, to young university students at Catholic University, undergrads, and I was able to say to them, you know, and on campus, even on Catholic University, almost all of the girls are Catholic, but not all of them dress as modestly as they should, particularly when the good weather comes. But I was able to say Irish weather It's not great, and probably had some hand in this, but not by any means everything. I said in the five years between undergrad and graduate studies at University College Dublin from 66 to 71, through 71, I said not once did I ever see even the hint of cleavage in the way young women dressed on campus. And the reason I could recall it, because any man knows, if you ever saw it, every guy's eyes would go, you know, it's just like, boom, it's human nature, you know? Never. And I said, well, were the girls taught that? Not overtly, but the culture sure shaped it. Culture is very, very powerful and transmits and does a huge amount, a good culture. All, all live cultures do a huge amount of shaping the sexual. we get to this later because with the evaporation of cultures that's happening through the digital, loads of things are causing it, including the attack on the sexual, but the onus, the task of raising the next generation can no longer rely on a culture. Modern parents no longer have an assist that every generation of human beings have had up to today. We're suddenly denuded of culture, and it's happening all around the world. It's not just here, it's not just in the U.S., everywhere. More advanced in certain places than others. So, you yeah, let's um, jump on to this one. I have here is the mother, down at the bottom is the father, and in between is this um, explanation I'm gonna give. When I look at the data, you see all the time and your common sense experience will show to you that when the family breaks down, the kids normally stay with the mother, occasionally with the dad, but it's 80 to 85% of the time it's with mother. And why is that? One of the big reasons and it's the very same reason why the feminists hate the body so much, is that biology is a massive help to the mother bonding with her child. First of all, the child grows in the womb for nine months. And the mother's experiencing that more and more, and the attachment even before the baby comes out, massive attachment. Then the process of giving birth, which to us guys is a total mystery and of a different planet or whatever. But the catharsis of that, the pain followed by the joy, has again its massive bonding impact. Then followed by whatever number of months, three, six, twelve months of breastfeeding, which, by the way, has its own you know, basis of the erotic in the best sense. But there's this massive bonding because of biology, between the baby and the mother. Flip over to dad. Now, dad has a good dad, married dad. Well, biology helps him a little. But as we'd say in the States, it ain't in the same league as with the mother. Not at all. The father who bonds with his child bonds by deliberate will and decision. I will be a good dad. i get home. i play with my boys. I'll play with my girls, you know, he'd get down and he'd do it. It's an act of the will. Now, father and mother together then build the family. But without the father's act of the will, the family is weak. And if father is taken out, then that's what I have here, the arch. He's like the keystone. It's like the arch, you pull it out, and gradually that whole arch will fall apart. If you go back to Kate Millett and Company, this lady here, and Georg Lukasch, those Marxist feminists in the 60s, those women around the table, were almost like the, the ultimate fruit of that starting at the French Revolution, but especially with Marx and Engels, where they finger the family and religion as the key obstacles. The Marxist feminists in the 60s in the States figured out how to collapse both, simultaneously. Let sex go wild on young males. You'll break the family, out of wedlock births, all of that sort of stuff, and you'll collapse religion as well. Because any adolescent who says, uh-uh, good times are here, I'm gonna enjoy this, ...is saying goodbye to God. He's a bit different than the guy who tempted and gives in... ...but there's oh, I've sinned and then he comes back. That's different. But the kid who embraces the sexual is saying goodbye to God... ...because the two cannot coexist. They figured that out and they've applied it. And you see what's happened. They're brilliant. Remove that keystone and the arch will fall... And what you essentially have is with the collapse of the family and the collapse of faith, human beings fall into the open arms of the socialist state, the totalitarian state. It's so-called welcoming arms. That's the way the power is gotten. So the three big societies to which we all belong, the family, the church, and the nation, the father has a key role. Because the family, if you think of it, the best of families, the child first enters the family before it enters the family of the Trinity. The child comes into the family and then the child is brought to baptism. So the family is absolutely key for the church. And one of the complaints I have, a little complaint, and I've got a few clergy here, so... I hope it gets through to that. You know, on the prayers of the faithful, when we pray for vocations, we do this a lot in the States, the vocation that's left out almost all the time in the States is a vocation to marriage. And I scratch my head I say, are those guys, excuse the language, are those guys stupid? Where do the other vocations blossom from to the priesthood and the religious life? not solely, but mainly in the good family, in the good married family. That's the key vocation. That's, that's not the key vocation, sorry. That's the most common. That's God's natural way of growing the rest. So please, pray for marriage. <laughs> any of you have any influence on the prayers of the faithful, <laughs> get that in. Okay, by the way, I have this in here. These are, this is a bit, a bit of theory here, but I do a huge amount of data gathering on the effect of marriage, on all sorts of outcomes that public policy that politicians are interested in, good politicians, the things you want for any nation, but also the effect of religious practice. And the way I'd sum it up is this green cube here. The more, if you take Let's say you have a cube here, just like there, and the bottom point, and the more you move up to the opposite end, the corner on the other end, where as you go up, you'd be increasing the three axes. You'd have more God, more worship, more marriage, and more children. That's the simple formula for a thriving nation, society, economy. The less worship, the less marriage, and the less children is a surefire way to collapse society and have an increasingly troublesome nation. Guess what the social policies of the West are? The green or the brown? Less marriage, less worship, less children. It's crazy. It's psychotic. I used to be a clinical psychologist. I switched into this sort of work to try and affect Congress through the data. I was trying to do insight therapy with Congress through the data. I'm a failure at that sort of therapy. (laughs) Even the best guys are afraid actually to act on it. And that's why I'm leading to where I'm heading today on this. But this this is a way of summing up. I have looked at 153 different measures in income, happiness, mental health, the sexual, I've looked at quite a bit, and then at the negatives of crime, abuse, mental ill health, depression, anxiety, poverty, addictions, and all the rest. Here's the pattern, and let's take this one here. Up here. These two, those two blue ones are the intact family. The big one is the intact family that worships weekly, The lesser one is the intact family doesn't worship at all. So you get a stark contrast between regular, lots of worship, as it were, weekly, and then none. And then the two red ones behind are all the broken families, and the one behind the big one there, you've got worship weekly and don't worship at all. So we've got a major contrast here between the intact family that worships weekly and then the poor little red one at the back the broken family doesn't worship at all. On every single outcome measured in the US federal data system, and there are eight different surveys, there may be more, but I've only ident- been able to identify and work with eight. On every one of the measures that's a positive one, the intact married family worship weekly is by far the core strength of the nation. And the broken family, the non intact, that doesn't worship at all, is the least. And when you look at the bad things, crime, addictions, et cetera, et cetera, it reverses itself totally. The least amount of that is in the intact married family worships weekly. And the biggest cause of problems is the broken family doesn't worship at all. And then the other two vie for second and third place. And actually the second and third place show that religious worship is very protective on the body and things that can go wrong on health, on addictions, sex, booze, and drugs. You'll get much less of it even in the broken family that worships weekly. Marriage delivers a huge amount of good on things of income, education, that whole line of things. Okay, that's a side. Oh, here it is on the sexual. Now we're, as everybody knows, Everybody is enjoying it. It's one of God's greatest gifts. Man, he's given to man. The pleasure on the sexual is huge. But those who worship weekly enjoy it much more than anyone else. It's very steady. And actually, the more you dig into it, there's one great survey. Kinsey, you probably have heard of Kinsey back in the 50s. He did a lot of research where it was really deliberately bad methodology, but it got proliferated all over the place. The big correction to that was in the 1990s, 1994, a consortium of professors from the University of Chicago and a number of the state universities of New York did a very big survey using federal data and adding it on. And in that you can dig in deep. And I've dug in, the people who enjoy the sexual the most are virginal at marriage and worship weekly. And within that, actually, in the U.S., it's very interesting. There's a there's a punchline coming here. If you look at, I was contrasting looking at it because you look at it, evangelical women and Catholic, and there's a slight difference between both. On the enjoyment of the sexual, evangelical women slightly high ahead of the Catholic. This is first and second place, but not much difference. But then on the frequency, Catholic are slightly ahead of the evangelical women. So my advice to young men is find an evangelical woman who's converted. <laughs> this, by the way, without going into them, if you look at the effect of religious worship, it, this is the massive untold story refused to be looked at by the social scientists. On every single measure I've measured, the more people worship, the better they do, on average. This is the American average. Grade point average, who gets the highest grades in the U.S.? Among teenagers who are going to high school. Those who worship weekly. A couple of times a month, a couple of times a year, never. The differences are very significant. We did a huge experiment under George W. Bush, back about 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Big bills going through Congress, billions of dollars poured into a big education reform, and they tweaked. The results are out now, and by and large, it's regarded as didn't make much difference. Actually, there was a little tweaking on the scores. Raised it slightly. Doesn't hold a candle to the effects of worship on education. Yeah, we're talking red here, (laughs) all this revolution. Um, On every single outcome, every single positive outcome that public policy wants, education, longevity, income, savings, health, happiness, you name it. (laughs) The devil doesn't like what I'm saying. (laughs) The more people worship God, and this holds across all faiths, all denominations. It's part of natural law. Man's inclination to worship the divine. I'm not saying there's an equivalence there, but this is there in the data right across. The more people worship, the better they do, on average, on everything. And the less they worship, the worse they do. And on the negative things of crime, abuse, you name it. In the federal data system, it's now boring for me to look into it. I can predict it. The interesting thing is what happens. There's a slight wobble at the end between worshiping a couple of times a year and never. That's where I'm Because the rest is all predictable. On crime, abuse, addictions, ill health, etc. The less people worship, the more of that you have. It's known in the social sciences, but social scientists, by and large, refuse to go there, refuse to teach it, so they're deliberately keeping people blind. It's an awful pity. Actually, one of the great things, I love the social sciences, because well done, they illustrate the way God made man. And the better and the stronger the statistical methodologies, the more robustly you can say that. Now it takes a while, sometimes a new finding will be controversial, but you know, we social scientists duke it out with the data. And in the end, you get it. And I can tell you, on everything taught by the 10 Commandments, they're upheld within the social sciences. Incontrovertibly, constantly. It's amazing, it's great. The future of the social sciences, by the way, lies within the Catholic Church because it's the only place where social scientists will have the freedom, no matter what their issues, to pursue the data. And gradually, social scientists are going to realize that. It'll be within the universities run by the church with the freedom to discuss and all the rest. So we'll be back to the refounding of the universities again, at least in the social sciences. The physical sciences is very different. Well... A little different. Okay, I'm going to skip over that and come back. I want to get to some stuff. I'll come back to that. Given the crisis in the sexual that Gabrielle covered wonderfully this morning, absolutely wonderful, and which we all know, we see it every day, Keep in mind, there's a flattening of cultures happening throughout the world. At the same time, the world is getting smaller and more interdependent. Those economies are getting more integrated, and we're all aware of it. You know, America has a depression. Within a month, Ireland had a, an economic crisis because of the fiscal relation, in the world, etc. If China gets it, or if Russia gets it, or if, you know, we're all increasingly interdependent. And with the digital revolution, which is only beginning, you're getting a massive flattening, almost an elimination of cultures. And at the same time, a bit of an emergence of a global thing through the digital. It's a pity that if there's anything that's a global culture now, it's the entertainment culture. And even communist China is getting concerned about it because of the effect, despite all their efforts to block it, its effect on young Chinese adolescents. Well, with that is coming also the breakdown in the family because of the breakdown in the sexual. And as I've dug through things, what is the single biggest thing I think we can do on the natural level? The biggest thing we know is to become saints. And our three prior speakers have just zeroed right in on that. That's where the reform lies. That's where the future lies. But I'm a, a social scientist. On the, on the natural level, what's the, I would be posing to myself, what's the single most effective tectonic plate shifting action that could be done to affect things on the sexual? And actually, the feminists gave me the answer. You zero in on what they zeroed in on. You go for the keystone. The male. He's the weak spot on the sexual. It's not the women acting weak, but the man is weaker. Okay? They zero it in there. We zero in the same spot. And this time we do sex ed the way the churches and the popes have always wanted it. Which is never in the schools. It's in the home. And now given what's happening, folk who have not much background at all in moral law are now getting concerned about what's happening in sex ed to their kids with the transgender and all of this into five-year-olds and six-year-olds prior to even grade one. Ordinary folk are getting concerned. The time is ripe and the need is enormous for dad to step up to the plate and say, uh-uh. By the way, this boy and this girl, but the dad stepping up on the son, because beside him now is the mother stepping up on the daughter, but as the men have the tougher tasks here, but we're made for protecting our kids, step up and say, uh-uh, that son is mine. And a matter of sexual, nobody has greater rights than I have. And I'm telling you, he's mine. I don't need your help right now. If I ever need it, I'll call on you. Up to then, he's mine. And you take back into the home. The father takes into the home the sexual formation of his boy. Now, where does that start? It doesn't start when he gives him the first talk on the sexual, you know, which is somewhere around, well, it's... Pornography is changing things, actually. You've got to get to the sexual before the boy normally would have been ready for it. But he's going to be exposed. What I think the British data on it was two years ago, that big study the Oxford professor did for the, U. Uh, for the UK government. And conclusion was, porn is everywhere. You can't protect them. And the average age of exposure is what, age eight? It's dropping. It's probably, you know, by the year, it, pro- it drops probably a couple of months. When the ordinary boy, average boy, will see it without seeking it out, it'll somehow get to him. And he's going to be thrown by it? So the father has got to have gotten to him a bit before that. However, let's go back. The father's sexual education of his son begins almost at birth. Definitely by about the sixth or eighth month when the child becomes much more aware of dad. You know, in the beginning, the child is very much with mom, but gradually becomes aware of dad. And at that point, dad has got to really start bonding, making sure the child and he become very close. All sorts of different ways of doing it. Different dads with different temperaments do it different ways. But the big thing is you give yourself your time your attention, your affection, whatever way it comes. You do twid- winks, or throwing them in the air, or whatever. And as they grow older, you read to them or you play ball with them, and different dads again, different ways. But the child will always, the boy will always delight in the attention his father gives him, particularly when the father wants to make fun with his son. Why is that so necessary? Because when the time comes to talk matters sexual if the boy doesn't like his dad, And his dad is being, you know, standoffish or whatever. He's going to be embarrassed. He's not going to want to hear it. And he's quickly going to get out of the way. But if the boy delights in his dad because his dad has delighted in him, then when the dad brings these issues up, the boy may be a little embarrassed because it is, but he'll listen, he'll pay attention. And as the father in ducks him into the matter sexual gradually as needed over the next six, seven years, more and more into it, the boy will listen. And I've mapped stuff out. I have a blog where I mapped out over six phases. And the early phases are essentially playing with the boy. Now you have this awkward phase that shouldn't be in there because of pornography. And dad will say something like, you'll come across these pictures, close your eyes, get them out of the way, come to me, tell me, or tell Mom. It's not your fault when you see it. And I don't have to go into the details, because if you see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pictures that shouldn't be there, of women's bodies and that. And uh, We don't do it in our family. Just something quick and brief, and letting the kid know, it's not your fault. But do come to me. And let me know. Because I need to know. And then when the time comes, he has the talk with him. And of course, this is where men and women are so different on matters. Men and women are so different on matters sexual. (laughs) Almost, what a stupid sentence, almost. (laughs) But the induction of the father to his son is totally different from the mother and her daughter. And As it happens, actually, imagine a boy whose father takes care with him, and as he gets into adolescence, the father says to his son, look, son, you're going to have feelings, you know, we get into the whole issue of wet dreams and all the rest and the things that will happen, and all sorts of things are going to blossom, and you'll have struggles around this, to be pure, because my desire for you is that you find the most beautiful woman that you would ever want, and you marry her. But that when you do, you will not have given your heart or any part of your body to anything else. You're preserving it all for her. You're going to make a gift to her of your body and all the great good it can bring to her. And I'm going to be praying that you find the woman of your desires who will have the same thing and will give herself to you for the first time on your marriage bed night. And I'm going to help you get there. Because this is tricky waters. And I've learned a lot. I'm a lot older than you. And when you get into the adolescent phase, the father's going to tell him of the struggles he has. Look, this battle for purity will last till you're 20 minutes in the grave. And for me, it's probably going to be 30 minutes in the grave. Okay? And he, he tells him, Without revealing too much, you don't get in confessing your sins to your sons. No, but you let them know the battle. You let them know confession is there. You let them know the temptations you face, the sort of temptations you face. When you, For me, when I travel, all men, you're away from the wife, you're away from the home, you're in new situations. The devil makes use of that all the time. What are the main temptations? Well, if you're in a hotel room, there's probably porn on the television screen, so you've got to have something else. You get used to not looking or not turning on the television, and you tell them how you handle that. And then, okay, there's the bar downstairs, and there's going to be sweet-looking things if you're not careful. And then, of course, there's going to be a strip club or something within an Uber ride away from the hotel, and the guys from the firm who are inclined to go that way. These are normal temptations normal men do. And here's how I handle it. I've got this picture of your mother, goes right there first. Right beside her is Our Lady. Now, you think it should be Our Lady in the middle? but No, actually, I put your, and Our Lady understands, I put your mother in the middle, Our Lady there, and the guardian angel beside. And that goes up the first thing I get into my room in the hotel. And when I'm tempted, here's what I do, and I make sure I've got a good book with me, and I tend to find the buddies, and we'll have dinner late at night, so that after that I can go to bed fairly quickly i tell you, the devil doesn't like this. (laughs) Okay. Now, imagine a boy whose father leads him into the sexual that way. How many boys get that? It's not done. Why? Because men have never had to do it up to now. Now, it was always good for the man to talk a bit, but the culture did a huge about. And the sacraments... Even without, as I did a huge amount. But now, given what's out there, the father has to step forward, protect his son, take it out of the school. All the popes have said it should be in the home. Not even in Catholic schools should there be sex ed. Not even there. My work has brought me in a lot of contact. Recently, they've been coming to me, good uh, seminaries, rectors, and all sorts of requests for me to do teaching. And one of the big problems in the best seminaries with the best seminarians, that seminarians in the United States face, and I bet you it's faced all around the world, is pornography. You say, what, seminarians and pornography? Well, yeah, they're men, they're young men, the height of their manhood, and the place is saturated with no matter where they go. So are the temptations there for them? Of course. One of their biggest struggles. And actually, I was getting requests from rectors independently. There were three, one after another, because I'm doing coursework that they wanted, and I wanted to know... I knew what I wanted to teach, but I wanted to know what they want taught, which was a different thing. And the request for me was to do something on the sexual, especially for the seminary. And I said, no, absolutely not. Preparation and seminarian needs on the sexual is the very same my son who's going to get married needs. Exactly the same. Because as Father uh, hinted, or not hinted, described this morning. I don't I'm going to use the term here. It doesn't it's not as reverend, i got to get a better one. But our Lord was the radical sexual revolution. This is where he revealed man to himself. A lot of it was revealing God to man, but here he revealed man to himself. First he said there will be no divorce. Now you remember the apostles' reaction? In that case, it's better not get married. We want out when we want out. Hmm? Uh Uh-uh. And actually, the way I sum up the church's teaching and John Paul II's insights and all the rest, as son and daughter baptized who marry, you're marrying within the family of the Trinity. And the Trinity does not do brokenness. It's impossible. A son of God and a daughter of God baptized, marrying. No brokenness to death. Death breaks it, not not the will. It doesn't go with love. The second thing he did was mentioned by Father again, you cannot look at a woman lustfully, but you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. That really raised the bar. And then the third thing he did, some are called to celibacy for the kingdom. For life. And our evangelicals Despite their great devotion to the Bible, always forget that. But, uh, now the way I'd sum all that up, what our Lord is asking of Christians and um, which was the basis of that, as the church expanded, that massive good in monogamous marriage abroad, where you can sum up our Lord's doctrine on matters sexual? every Christian is called to celibacy. Some for life, who have that vocational, the rest of us, till marriage. It's that simple. And the sooner we start saying about that simplicity, the more the message will get through to our kids. And we'd sound different. Well, we better, because we are. <laughs> and unless they see the difference, they won't know the good. I'm talking about our neighbors and a lot of those poor lost people out there. Last night, myself and Gabrielle, who we met, we had a great meeting a couple of years ago in Germany when I was visiting there, and we were looking forward to get together. And we went across the street from the hotel and had a late supper. And at the end of supper, a couple came up to us and we were commenting on the way we were dressed. And it was quite laudatory. They quickly said, what are you talking about? We said we're here for a conference. Oh, what, about what? And we got into the sexual. Now, this lady described herself as a radical feminist, but she kept kept asking. It was an open asking, what, and that, and that, and that, you know, about divorce, and she divorced her husband, and what could she do for her kids, and and she had what was probably a boyfriend beside her, and he was listening very seriously, (laughs) taking it all in. (laughs) But the part I want to get across, she was well-dressed, she was clearly very intelligent, but she was open. She was inquiring. It wasn't a hostile inquiring. It was an open inquiry. It was like, what's this strange stuff? And I don't know what effect we had, but I suspect it'll be good. So they need to know what we believe. And our children need to be, this needs to be gotten across. them. Look, we are different. And actually, chastity is a foundation. It's not the most important virtue. Love is. But without chastity, Pursued, that if it's lost, regained through confession and through all the disciplines the churches that grace can give, without it, the rest falls. These radical ladies knew that, know that. The way back on the natural level, and it quickly goes into grace, and grace perfects nature, but we cannot. We commit the sin of presumption if we don't work with nature. Knowing how nature needs to be dealt with, we deal with it that way. And then of course grace then infusing perfects it. Even the data shows that, well. Sort of. That is a heresy if I pursue that too much, but So what I'm proposing is that we start and be known by fathers who will gradually maybe get them together one or two because us men don't like getting into big groups the way women do. You know, We're lucky if we get into two, three is really big group among men to talk about stuff like this. <laughs> but again, we better go with nature because that's the way men are by nature. And on this issue, we will do this in small groups and, and, and spread out. But we've got to back each other up and begin to talk. How will we pull this off? Okay, what do we do? Here's what I'm doing with my son. And I'm trying to experiment. I am experimenting and figuring out what's the right configuration for men, fathers, to do this with their sons. It's never been done before this way, in a semi-organized way. It's almost like a movement we learn how to do. Because the whole world needs it. With the collapse of culture all around the world, All cultures will need it. All religions will need it. It's a natural law thing. With the, just the decimation of all cultures. Fathers, in good societies, 200 years from now, well, we're not going to wait 200 years, we're going to get going quickly. But if we were successful and affect the whole world, it would be normative for fathers to be understood they take care of the sexual formation of their of their boys. Around the world, always. Any father who's a man takes onto himself, and himself will all. Uh-uh. I form my boy. I am going to make a great husband and a great father out of my boys. And by the way, nobody else can do that the way he can. So the moment calls for it. And we've got to get together. My email, anybody wants to follow up with me, is pat.fagan, it's easy enough, at gmail.com, that's easy enough, put the two together and you got it. Pat.fagan at gmail.com. And trying to figure out how us fathers can do that. Getting the material support that we need. Here's what you do at this age, here's what you do there, here's what you do there, here's stories about that, Here's research about, that's easily done. That part is grunt work. We can get that done. It's figuring out how guys could get together and help each other out. Now, grandfathers have sons. And I see a lot of grandfathers here. I'm one myself. You can talk to your sons. You can talk to other grandfathers. How do we pull this off? And actually, I was talking with Matthew, who drove me here last night. There's a whole thing for singles to do. You see, the weekend is the nirvana time for the modern culture. But how Christian men live the weekend is something they've got to learn how to do. The Sabbath day being the relational day, the first big relationship was with God, the others with family, and for a lot of the singles who are away from family, with friends. You leave the digital behind, you've got a good time, you've got good friends, and you get known for great times, great times, good fun. That's a whole apostolate that the young singles can do, and of course, the young single women are going to love guys like that, okay? And the guys will love always love young single women who are beautiful. So you know, it's a it's a winning combination. But coming back to the that's only preliminary. That's getting ready for the real work. That when they get married and have their boys and have their children. The father who's doing that, it'll be very easy for the mother to come alongside him with the daughters, and then, of course, they both tag-team on certain issues. But without the father taking this initiative, the world is lost. See how far the feminists have come since 1970? Kate Millett's book was uh, Sexual Politics. National Organization of Women, they were founded in 1970, 69, 70, 50 years. Look what they've achieved all around the world. And it's happening all around the world. And the target was the men. It amazed me, I was telling you about that thing about Irish culture and talking to the undergrads at at Catholic University. And we got into some of the things a bit more on the, on the sexual stuff a little bit more. And then the Q&A, some of them were thanking me, and afterwards they were saying, you know, you're talking in ways nobody has talked to us before. But one of the things that I found was the young men were saying, said to me in Q&A, if we talk this way outside, we we'll lose our jobs. I said, what? And then I looked around and I said to some of the other men, you know what he's talking about? They all saying yeah." Which is another effect, the feminists have had. Men, ordinary men, are now afraid to be men. Woo. Big stuff. So it's within that. now you don't want to go out and become a martyr, you know? That would be presumption, too. No, you gotta be savvy. The first thing this is, keep it very low key, don't have to be public about it. Get one or two friends, I see a few young guys here. Find your friends, can you talk about this? Is this the way we're gonna do it? How do we do this? How do you pull off? Can you pull off getting your son out of the school? In this country, I don't know. In the states, we're lucky. Every state except California, you can opt out of, and it's, it's done all over the place on sex ed. Not by everybody. But it's permissible, and it's doable, and increasingly more have been doing it, and gradually. But even if you can't, what do you do instead? Because you'll have to work twice as hard if your son is getting exposed to this awful stuff in the sex ed class. Of course, they get exposed to it in education or in literature and social studies. It'll come in in other ways. So no matter what you'll still have to be educating your son in being a man, in being fully sexual. Like one of the things you get in what? Masturbation? Look. Men have got to talk to their sons about that. Very easily done. But one of the things that men are not taught, you do that, and particularly if you do that with pornography, but even leave out the pornography, you're not going to have the sexual self-control you need to have to be a great man with your wife. This is biology 101. And most boys are never taught that. The girls need to be taught it too. But the boys, definitely. And then you add pornography in, hey, guy, you're making yourself a sexual cripple. Why is Viagra now sold to, and marketed to 30-year-olds? Used to be an old man's disease, erectile dysfunction. Now young man's. Why? Because they're not being taught. They're going after the sexual. Where is the sexual most to be enjoyed? Now come on, it's time for us Christians to start speaking up. You think you got it? Poor guys, you're being sold a bill of goods, you're being sold fool's gold. The best is to be had within the church. Those who adore God do their best to love him and are trying, and they're on their way, they worship him weekly, and if they've been good enough to arrive at marriage virginally, they're the ones who are enjoying it the most, the most frequent, and the most enjoyable. Now, not 20-year-olds who are doing it because the virtuous Christians at that age are not doing it at all, so you can't compare. But by the time you get to 30, Mm -hmm. mm, the data is very, very clear. Do we say this to the world outside? Well, this is why I think we need good social science. It's handy to be able to say that. So coming back to our Lord, actually to the re evangelization You take that map of America there. Here's my dream. If I were a pastor, I'm sure you, we've all fantasized at some stage, oh, if I was the parish priest, this is the sermon I'd give, right? Well, here's one of mine. Once a year, let's say there's a re-evangelization study, and at Catholic University, I'm hoping to pull off this, where we'd be able to get the map of the intactness of the family out, and we can do it by city level, which is almost by diocesan level, and even down to not to the parish level, but by clusters of parishes, be able to see the level. So you have those distributed in the pews on Re-Evangelization Sunday. And here's the sermon I would give. Okay, Jim and Judy, we're going to talk about you re-evangelizing the world. I know Jim is going to be saying, Father, you got it wrong. I got a wife, I got kids, I got a job, I'm up to here. Re-evangelization is for you and for the nuns and for the few holy people in the parish, but I I ain't got the time. I know, Jim, but you're not getting off that easily. But it's not that difficult either, Jim. I'm not going to ask you to become a seven-day Adventist go knocking on the doors. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. We don't do it that way. First thing you got to do, Jim, is have a great marriage. And the first step of that, when you go home today, you're going to turn to Judy and say, Judy, what's the single best thing I can do for you to give us an even better marriage. Now Jim, she already has it in her head. She's dying to tell you. But wait till you get home. However, the good news is... Yeah, all the women are laughing. They know exactly what I'm talking about. And the guys are going... (laughs) However, guys, the good news is... I say to Jim, Jim, the good news is Judy has to do the same thing to you. Jim, what's the single best thing I can do to make our marriage better for you? And Jim, be bold. Don't hold back. Okay, so their first step, Jim and Judy, is to have a great marriage. Second step, you've got to raise your kids very well. Now, we at the parish can probably help you a lot more, and we probably should be doing more, but there's a lot out there on how to form the character of your children. It takes a lot of effort, but it needs the help of friends and neighbors. Now, the third thing, and this is where you become apostolic and missionary. Your third thing is, this would be in the States, you'd say, once a year, Jim, you're gonna throw a great barbecue for your neighbors. You're going to invite them all, you know, within your little neighborhood. So, great marriage, working on your marriage, working on your kids, and a barbecue. And if you're really missionary, in the middle of winter, we have Super Bowl Sunday. You know what that is over here? It's like your soccer final. We have our American football final in the middle of winter. It's called Super Bowl Sunday, and the whole U.S. it's a big holiday. So if you're really missionary, you do something on Super Bowl Sunday as well as in the summer on the barbecue. I guarantee you, by year three, you're going to get a phone call one night. Jim, this is Jack down the street. Can I get together with you? You know, I'm running into a bit of problem, either with the wife or the kids, and you seem to know a bit about this. I look at you, can we get together? The guy is asking for the help. Now, that's not the beginning of the missionary work of the re-event. That's the beginning of seeing the fruit of the evangelization that's all been going on. The way is friendship, and the big issue is marriage. And that, that missionary work is the missionary work of the laity of the married to your neighbors. This brings us right back to the early Christians. See how they love one another. That's what Jack is saying to Jim. I see the way you have your marriage and your your family. Whatever the Kool-Aid is you're drinking, I want to drink it. So it's the mission territory for all of you here is in your block, your neighborhood, immediately beside you. So if I was your parish priest what I'd be saying is, I want to get our parish known as the Barbecue Parish, <laughs> where we do that. And then eat once a year, something like that, you recall that to people. The other big issue, and we've touched on it here, and this is not the work of the lady, this is the work of the bishop and the priest, but there's a real natural symbiotic relationship between marriage and the priesthood. First of all, the priest is the witness of the church at at the marriage. But the preparation for marriage, the whole prayer, confession, all of that is a natural part. But keep in mind, actually, one of the things that dawned on me, there are two sacramental vocations. One is to the priesthood, and the other is to marriage. And by the way, there's no sacramental vocation to the religious life. I don't want to denigrate that, actually. The contemplatives are the powerhouse of prayer for the church. But our Lord is elevated. He has, actually, there are two great pathways to heaven. And for the vast majority of us, it's marriage. And marriage is the sacrament of the sexual. Marriage is the place where the sexual is enjoyed to its fullest. And the rest of the world has got to get to know that that's the way Catholics see it. Marriage and sex go together. No, no, they're celibate for all the other things they're celibate. But that's it. Keep in mind also that When time ends, and after the apocalypse is behind us, and we're all in heaven or in the other place, those of us in heaven, God set everything in motion the creation, the incarnation, Calvary, the resurrection. Pentecost Sunday and everything since and on into the future for one purpose. He wants a large family with him in heaven forever. And how does he get those children? Through the sexual act. It is extraordinarily close to the center of his heart. We have a great mission, a great way of life. It's difficult to be good, but that's okay. Somebody said this morning, I think it was you, Father uh, Linus, the church is not a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. We're all sinners. And we trust in God, our Father, that despite being weak children, he'll get us there, because we keep going back to him. And for 90-something percent of the church, the vocation they have is the vocation to the sexual, which means to marriage, family, and children. And that's the great way of love. And it's a constant growth in love, and it's not easy, there's a great priest over in Washington who died about seven years ago, and he had been um, spiritual, an external spiritual director to one of the local seminaries, uh, Emmitsburg, which is in Maryland-Pennsylvania border. And he had a great effect on a lot of the seminarians. Actually, one of the priests of my daughter and son-in-law is one of these seminarians who was literally walking down the road to the exit of the seminary. He was leaving. For whatever reason, he was leaving. And Father Ron was coming in, and he met him. He said, where are you going? And the guy told him. He said, let's go have a chat. That man is now one of the most apostolic pastors I know in the Washington area. He had a great effect. At his funeral, more than half the congregation were priests he had affected. He tells a great story. Given his vocation, he wasn't able to uh, take care of the weddings of his relatives and all the rest, because his work took him elsewhere. But his sister finally said, look, Ron, this is my last daughter, my last kid. You're going to marry this kid, or I'm going to kill you. (laughs) So, Great, he, he said, yes, good, okay, of course we will. He was from Boston, he was up in Boston, he had this great sermon, he prepared, magnificent sermon, and he said, there they was up in Boston, you know, Boston Irish, and the bride is coming up, and the groom is here, and the, all the ants are looking at the dress, and ooing and awing and he said, all my male relatives, he said, yeah, sooner this is over, we can have a pint, the better, come on. But as they're coming up, and then they come up, oohs and oz, and they kneel down in front. And then probably, he didn't say this, but probably from his years in the confessional, what he did say later was, all of a sudden I saw here these lovebirds in front of me. And I know, maybe within the next week, or the next month, or the next year, but definitely within the next five years, one morning, one of these is going to wake up, turn around in the bed, look at the other still asleep, and say, How the hell did I get myself into this mess? <laughs> the suffering of marriage. He said, I threw my sermon out and went up, and extemporaneously he gave a sermon on, this, on the relationship what I said, the symbiotic relationship between marriage, the vocation to marriage, and the vocation of the priesthood. The two different ways of carrying the cross. And of course, the priest sees, through the confessional, the struggles in marriage. And the, the difficulties that people face to be faithful. And he said, it sure helps me be a priest. And of course, we, seeing great priests, just rejoicing. I know this morning it was my first time in that cathedral and mass was coming and then I saw it wasn't Father Armand or Father Linus. I went to the chapel and saw it was a different priest. And then you say, I wonder what mass was going like. Wasn't it magnificent to see a wonderful priest? Everything you were talking about he embodied. The reverence for the Eucharist, the whole thing. It was just one. Now, When we, married lay people, see priests like that, doesn't it help us? It draws us on, and it leads us on to heaven. So there's a tremendous symbiotic relationship between those two sacramental vocations. But if we fathers do the thing right on the sexual, with our boys, there will be no shortage of priests, no shortage of men, who through the way they have been formed sexually are prepared and ready to take on celibacy for life. It'll happen if they get the proper sexual formation from a father who loves them and knows a lot about it because he's a good husband and wants to make an even better husband out of his son because every man will say, if I was starting again, I'd do it even better, right? Thank you very much. God bless. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today.